Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 460 of Constructed Criticism. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mason Clark. Hey, how you doing? And yeehaw, Abe Stein. Yeehaw, howdy, partners. I gotta ask, did you actually put... Actually, you know what? I don't think that made the, the podcast. We gotta tell the behind-the-story thing about the cowboy hat on the show. Yeah, we did have that conversation with Nathan um, before the interview where I was talking about the cowboy hat. Because I, I did want, like, I had planned to get it for, for a while when I thought of it. Because as I was talking about my was improving last week, I was thinking of ways to like, make sure I was going to have fun during tournaments. They were really positive. Um, especially because the format was just not in a place I was having the most fun with it. And um, so I didn't wind up getting the hat. But no, I, that, it was like going to be pretty uncomfortable to keep my deck list under it. And be kind of distracting, and I didn't have like really any sideboard notes, but I kind of knew my like few plans I wanted to go with um, out the gate. So we, we talked about you know just keeping the deckless under, being like, all right, here you go, and like taking off the hat and giving it to him. But I didn't get that that involved. In that. The, the hat itself was ridiculous enough. The checking the sideboard joke was was hysterical to me. I told my wife about it. It's like I explained the joke. It was so funny. Yeah, I just imagined Abe taking off. So like, oh, let me check my sideboard, guy. And then looks at his hat, and he's like, we're good! And then puts it back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have been would have been good. Maybe in a more sitcom version of life, I would have done it. I like, I like to think there's a universe where he did that, Mason. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be really funny. Well, uh, while this show is not about the comedy, even though Mason brings it every week, it is about always improving. We want to be better every day, every chance we get. Um, you know, it is... Something that was really funny, uh, I, I'm trying, I wanted to give this person a shout out and I don't remember the name and now I feel bad. But somebody was like, hey, I really appreciate this segment of the show. Always Improving is my favorite segment because it really shows that each week the hosts are internalizing with me and it makes me feel like I get to participate in the show. Um, actually, I think Brendan, one of our patrons, has said that to me too. And I, I, I really appreciate that kind of type of feedback. But Abe, you got to go first this week. What did you do to improve in Magic this week? Yeah, so I mean, this is obviously a pretty, um, pretty big week for Magic for me. I'm for those of you who are not aware, I qualified for the Pro Tour at the RC. I went ten three and one, got exactly forty uh, eighth place. Got the Let's invite. Go. Yeah, it was it was a really really um, awesome tournament throughout, and. You know, I, I did come into it playing stock green. I really made a lot of decisions about, you know, there's a lot of decks I think are pretty reasonable. A lot of them I could have played, but um, something I kind of remembered feeling in the past about situations where decks like Tron were really good um, or just decks that were like really raw power decks was that if you just play the deck well, you do all the fundamentals right, and you keep good hands, you're going to be favored in like a lot of your matches when your deck's that good. Um and so I came in with like that being really my my mission and goal. And over all fourteen rounds, there was not a single hand that I kept where afterwards I regretted it. And that was like honestly, I think the biggest contributor to my success this weekend. Like I obviously I had a lot of really really or obviously games that come down to combat, and I think I navigated my combats really well, or like sequencing, or you know making sure I didn't overextend into um, into like potential answers and. You know, I sequenced well, but ultimately, the thing that I think made the biggest difference is that there was not a single hand I kept that was bad. Like, I mulliganed against Greasefang on my losses. I, like, 
lost to game one, and then game two I mulled the four, because none of my hands were actually going to be good, and then won with my mold of four, and then in game three, I mulled the four again and was like just an untapped land off the top away from really stabilizing and taking over that game. Like, I'm being willing to be that aggressive in my mulligans, and to actually have the discipline to execute on that, um, even in the face of playing, you know, some some particularly high stakes, right? I'm, I'm playing, once I have my third loss, it's like, okay, every round I'm playing for my ability to qualify for the Pro Tour, the whole reason I'm here. Um, so to play what is a string of, like, for me, like, five, six, maybe seven matches leading up to a BTQ Finals in a row, um, and still doing that consistently throughout was definitely my uh, my biggest thing. Even Mason, like, after one of um, one of my matches, you were like, I was really, really, like, impressed that you were like were willing to throw that back because it was absolutely correct but um you know it's a hard one to ship so like looks good enough but probably wasn't and just being in that spot doing that that was really um big screw to that success and what i really made trust improving on this week and it paid off i love it i i think that if you go back and listen to the rcq episode i don't know if they actually made this vote but you and i had a big talk at san diego where you were like really happy, you wanted to work on a few things, and really felt like you, at the next one, could be motivated to to get there. Um, you know, you said you were mechanically good, but you had some some little stuff to tweak, and and you you, you chose what, in my opinion, is the best deck in the format. You uh, did the thing that I think this podcast teaches, like in ad nauseum. Do we talk about it too much? I feel like we talk about like make good mulligan decisions is like. Our our new motto. It's just so big. It really is. Well, I think I think that you know, just in a format like this, where it's so play draw dependent, if you are ever going to win a game on the draw ever, if you keep a bad hand on the draw, you are a hundred percent to lose in this format. Like it's just, I mean, I'm not. I don't even know that that's like hyperbole. Like if you keep a bad hand on the draw, you're in big trouble. Um. Yeah, I think it depends deck to deck, and we can get into this a bit in in the main topic. But I think one of the strengths of green specifically is that it's the best at breaking serve on the. Deck. I I was gonna say that. I, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that in the in the main topic. Mason, what about you? What have you been doing this week to be hashtag always improving? Yeah, so I think my big always improving moment comes from a failing of something I did at the RC where I had a very long judge chain of interactions that led to a 30 minute um time extension against a very nice listener of the podcast Wu, who ended up getting ninth in the rc congratulations Wu. it was nice to meet you um but afterwards i was incredibly drained it was just a thing where we had a bunch of like little small things and we had to talk to judges and it just took a long time uh to no fault of anyone and i was just so drained and i didn't take the time and i knew that i should have when the next round started just say like hey i need to go to the bathroom because my round went 30 minutes over time uh, that, for, due to our extension and so I, I didn't want to hold up the tournament I felt bad about that I just was like I'm gonna go play whatever and I definitely suffered and like let it snowball and I should have and I know to do this too and I just failed to uh, use the skills right there to like take a minute go get some water refresh a little bit and get back and you know and like try to recoup there still I think at that point there was two or three rounds left I can't remember exactly but there was a couple of rounds left and I, I need to do well and I was still very much alive uh, despite getting a draw there. And so I need to do that. And I just did it. And that's something I'm going to internalize. Like, when you do something like that, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to, you know, tell the judge something like that. Like, hey, judge, I was the last round. We were 30 minutes over. I had no time to use the bathroom, grab some water. Can I go do that real quick? 
Uh, and I think, you know, 99% of judges don't do that, so. Yeah, I, I, I think that all of us have this always improving moment where we don't take the time that we need. And, you know, Mason, I, I, I appreciate your vulnerability here. Like, it's, it's easy to say, like, you know, I should just tighten up. I should just play better. I should just go on to the next thing. But, like, I don't know. I, I think that it's admitting that you're human and you needed just a minute is important. Definitely needed it, but it is what it is. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go next here. Um, I, you know, the the week is such a long thing from podcast to podcast, where I had two different weeks. I had a magic week and I had a smash week, and there are always improving moments both in Smash from attending my first super major ever, um, but there are also moments in magic and uh, i'm trying to decide which one to give to the listener i i thought i knew going into this segment what i was going to talk about but i i do think that the smash one is actually more relatable than the magic one so i'm going to go with the smash one um this this weekend i had uh it was round two of my super major um i was up a game they just like in magic the uh, the beginning of Smash Tournaments are best of three. I was up a game. My opponent switched characters, um, which I guess they had like a really good cyborg plan is like the comparison here. Um, but they switched to like a much more aggressive deck, so to speak. Um, and uh, I was up. I was actually up in the game, and uh, I went for an edge guard, which is not something I normally do. Uh, I basically went for like the okay, like I'm closing this out, like I'm getting this win, and I messed up. Like I, I uh, accidentally did what's called a, an air dodge, and uh, I didn't have a recovery after that. And what ended up, it basically, I punted, and I did not have the mental fortitude after that. I mean, you know, I went on to not only lose that game, but I actually lost the match in a match that. At the end, my opponent was like, wow, you were way better than me. I cannot believe I just beat you. I was like, yeah, I thank you. That's very kind of you to say, but like you, you know, you, you didn't have the problem in this game like I did. And I think, I think that it's really interesting going from a game where I'm one of the best players in my region to one of the worst players in my region and having to deal with my own mental fortitude because I actually think that that is something that I take for granted granted that I built up in magic. I was not always good at those things in magic and I had to build mental fortitude. Um, and I think a lot of players that like come from different games think that that's going to transfer over and, and maybe it does for them, but like it's not for me. And I think that, if there's one thing that I learned this weekend, uh, it's that, you know, this is something that I have to constantly work on in Magic because I am not naturally good at this and I need to kind of hone the skill, uh, sharpen the blade every now and again. And it, it's hard. Like, it's hard to let be like, I just, like, went from winning my first Super Major match easily to, like, losing... 
Um, it would have been a big moment for me in Smash, and I don't know. I really let it get to my head, and it, it's kind of like all those those level up moments we have in Magic, where it's like the 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 barrier to entry. It, you got to break that seal, so to speak, and it's. I, I, I don't know. I think it's made me relate a lot more to some of our podcast listeners in different ways. And I, I don't know. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to rebound from making... I mean, same thing in Magic. Like, you make a, ma- a bad play. And in Magic, it's not like Smash, where Magic, you make a bad play, and you, like, maybe you pump the game, and you're shuffling up for the next game. You've got time to think about it. Time to, like, really process it. You're on a real timer in, in a much... A much shorter time or two in Smash, and that's like, yeah, you know, it's it's a hard it's a hard skill to learn for for anyone in any sense. Like in Magic, you have it a bit easier because you have a lot more time to process it, and it can either you can either let it kind of play its course and spiral out of control, or you can get a grip on it. But the cost of it in Smash, is yeah, I, I don't I don't know if like I would be allowed to like go shove my face in a sink to like calm down and Smash like. Yeah, the the games are just so short and the tournament moves so fast uh, because they have to. But I will say that like it reminded me of the times in Magic where that happened, where like I had to, I had to. I think we did a whole episode on not compounding your misplays. I think is the name of the episode. If you want to look it up, listeners. But like, I definitely compounded my misplay this weekend, like, to the 10th degree. And I think that if I, like what Abe said, had a moment to step back, that wouldn't have been the case. What were you going to say, Mason? Very similar thing to what Abe said. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, that is going to do it for Always Improving. If you want to become a patron of the show, head on over to patreon.com slash ccmpg. The show will always be free. We always want to be giving you guys free content that helps you improve in magic. But if you feel like you're getting something out of the show, head on over to Patreon, you know, see what we're offering uh, and, and see if that's something that aligns with uh, something that you'd be interested in. This week, it's all about the RCs. We had four RCs this week in Abe. We had the US RC, the Central America RC, the Canadian RC, that's all of North America. And then we had a Chinese RC. Uh, all Pioneer, all giving us great data. So, we're doing a Mega Rankings episode. We're covering all these events. Uh, how do we award points? It's pretty simple. Uh, it's based upon your... It is uh, weighted weighted upon winning the tournament and uh, being part of the winner's metagame. So you get six points for first, five points for second, four for top four, three for top eight, two for top 16, and one for a top 32. This breaks down into giving people more wins for their, for winning in their top eight matches, while also allowing for people of really similar records to still getting credit for their wins. With that being said, uh, let's, let's go into the data. Uh, so we have two decks with 12 points. Abe, we have, is it Creativity and Lotus Combo? Which one do we want to talk about first? Let's get Lotus out of the way. I feel like Lotus, we, we talk about pretty frequently, and there is always about the same to say. I, so, th- this is interesting. Uh, well, I felt like there was some innovation right before the RC in this deck where Lotus actually 
I, maybe we actually talked about that last episode, though. We did not. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about it really quick, Mason? Yeah, so there was uh, a new way to Lotus combo, essentially, where Chandra Hope's Beacon, uh, the first time you cast a spell, you can copy uh, the spell. So the idea is that, well, sorry, once the first time Chandra sees the spell cast, I should say, she can copy. So you would, like, play uh, Chandra, play something, uh, Fireball, and then play another Chandra, regrowth both Chandras, and, like, do that over and over and kill people, essentially. Uh, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but for the sake of the listener, basically you would cast Balagids Recovery, get back Chandra plus another Balagids, minus one Chandra to deal damage, and then repeat over and over and over again. Uh, and this changed the deck up a little bit. It also made the deck a lot weaker to Graveyard Hate. While it, it could overcome Graveyard Hate, it now became something where, you know, if you put a rip uh, into play, they now have to answer the rest of the piece before going off, which wasn't always the case with the Lear build. It was a lot easier with Lear in play, but, you know, if you want to get to here, uh, you had that going in. So that changed up some of the Lotus stuff, and some of those players adopted that tech, and some did not. Yeah, it actually seems like the combo decks at large, you know, we won't talk about every deck on this episode, but it did feel like the combo decks were pretty split on how to be built. And one of the things that you'll notice is missing is some of those pure combo decks, like, um, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Rona, for example, just did did not convert at the RCs, and it, I, I think that that's that's just something good about Lotus Combo, in my opinion, where like it gets to be a combo deck in the in a format where combo decks have a hard time if they're not if they don't have a proactive game plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we see Grease Fang as another combo deck that just fell off here. Oh, that... you know, compared to our last power rankings, Grease Fang was number two, uh, for example, and like our last bigger rankings eight weeks ago, and now it's like not on our list. Yeah, yeah. That... I... go ahead, babe. Yeah, I think that um, you know, looking at just Lotus's positioning in the metagame against a lot of decks we're about to talk about following this, Lotus is in a good spot, and the format has kind of gone from it's been actually kind of cycling back on itself. It's kind of the more random combo decks have popped up. Um, and the more that there are other there are decks trying to beat those, the more that Lotus has been, okay, I'm back to preying on some of the more fair decks. But also it's kind of just polarized between actually preying on those fair decks and getting preyed on by these other things, right? Like the decks that can drag race it do quite well against it, and the decks that can't don't. But the decks that can drag race against it typically are getting hated out by the other things. So um, it's it's funny that it has basically the same kind of positioning that it had the last time we talked about it, I believe. Um, except it's just the metagame around it has changed the, the context in which it exists. I, I think that just makes it a staple, right? Like it is, as much as people want to dog on different decks, like it does make it a staple of this format. Absolutely. Uh, the other deck is is it creativity, and I, I want to talk about something really quickly, where there is an interesting part uh, of this deck. Actually, would have been higher, but there are actually three different blue red control decks uh, in the format, and I, we might have talked about them in the podcast last week. But there is there is um, is it creativity that plays you know the Magus Opus torrential Glare Hulk stuff. 
There's is it creativity that plays the worm combo. Then there is blue red turns control. Uh, blue red turns control also had finishes. There's a, there's a fourth one too. Oh, wait, am I missing one? Well, technically you're missing two from the analogy you gave. There are five creativity decks. Keep, keep, oh, you're talking about like the Atraxa versions so are, and the. There are Atraxa builds, and yeah. there are the. They just play two World Spine Worms and some Bitter Reunions. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So the, and, and the some people don't even play Bitter Reunion after this weekend. Yeah. But I would argue that there are five of these decks. So yeah. it does make it like, probably so, even higher. Today. Yeah, I, I, what, <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make, Mason, is like hammering home, which is that there is not a decisive build of blue-red control that has a combo finish in this format, but it still ended up with the third most finishes in the RCU weekend. Um, the best finishing deck played two Gear Hulk, four Magma Opus, and one Atraxa, kind of splitting the difference. And, you know, I think that the listeners would like to know, Mason, you, you played a lot of this deck. How would you build this deck right now? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I played against a very nice player named Evan from New York, and he actually uh, tested a bunch of this event. He was talking to me, and they played two Worms, no Bitter Unions. And he was like, I wish I played like a bitter union. And I think I really liked the idea of playing like two to three bitter unions and just being like a stern lesson. I can turn four worm into play against the fair decks. And that's like pretty unbeatable right now. Uh, and I think I like that the most because it still has the combo kill available, but it doesn't have to do it. And that deck, I believe he had like some of the sideboard stuff to like turn into the other versions of the deck. So I like the idea of that. And that's some ways I really start taking it. If I had to play an established deck, I think it would be probably closer to Worms in a Ghost, um, but only because like the other as like the other combo controlly creativity decks rise up. I want to be the one killing each other and not playing these long drawn out games against each other. If that makes sense. It does. Abe, do you have any thoughts on on this deck specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a couple of thoughts on like a much like Mace was saying about the distinction between the different builds. Like, thinking back to talking about Reed, talking with Reed about why he chose to play this deck when he won the Pro Tour, um, you know, it is a deck that really thrives because it has both the tools to interact and, um, you know, a, a way to, to cheese game. A little bit of Parmesan, if you will. And I think that one of the issues that I've seen with the, like, Gear Hulk, um, like builds or the you know just worms with no way to give haste builds is that you can be putting yourself in a winning position very quickly you're not actually winning the game and with the way the format is you kind of need to actually win the game like the turns do really matter um because there is so much of the the combo stuff out there and additionally like the interaction that they're playing is also a bit weaker the more the deck gets known right if you know that everyone's playing a bunch of red damage-based spells um, as their their interaction, and this is kind of what it is, you can play a deck that's good against those. And so for both those reasons, much of this deck is really strong and was really popular. It's not surprising me that it's coming in, but not towards the top of the field in the format, despite its popularity. Like, I think overall, I'd consider this an underperformance for the archetype as a whole, um, especially pulling together all of the, the different creativity decks. I agree. I think one thing that's really hit home for me over the last it's three or four months we've had creativity in the format is that the is it interaction suite is very good. 
and it is figuring out a way to make that in converting that into a win that has been the challenge and there's a lot a lot of like dissent dissension in the ranks basically on like what is the best way to win and i think it is something that changes all the time like i think if you're a creativity player in pioneer you have the creativity box and like you are switching things up a fair bit because the things you're trying to beat are changing a fair bit as well so that, that those are my big takeaways yeah, I, I love what you guys said. I, I think that it, what Mason just said really highlights it, uh, and, and what Abe said. I'll, I'm going to start with Abe's point of bread-based removal. One of the things that I feel like was missing um, this this weekend, and, you know, I, I, I tested exactly one, one to two decks for my teammate that was asking for testing help. So, like, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but, like, Divide by zero seem to really be missing from these decks, where it gets to offer something really different than the typical interaction package that Blue Red offers. Um, but if I, one of the things that I think is that if I'm going to play a card like that, I'd rather play a Chandra build of of the deck, and that's basically my initial thoughts and where I'm at I, uh, going into my last. I have five more Pioneer RCs, RCQs. The rest are all. Lord of the Rings, but like, if this is the deck that I pick up, which is likely, like, that I will play it at least one, that is where my head is at. But I really like what Good Mason question. said about kind of the deciding how you're going to win, right? Um, I, I played a mirror the other day uh, of the kind of like the Atraxa-ish decks where they also had Chandra in addition to their other stuff, and that seemed really hard to beat. Quick question: Which genre are you talking about? Hope the. Hope again. Okay, cool. Hope Just wanted to make sure. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Uh, that will do it for our twelve-point decks. Uh, our next bundle of decks are a deck that won two of the RCs of the four RCs, and a deck that I think. I, I don't know, surprised me. And, uh, let, let's talk about the one that surprised me first. Let's talk about Blue White Spirits coming with four, 14 points. Um, we, we had a little bonus episode where we kind of talked about the different tempo decks. Uh, I did not include all the tempo decks together. If I had, I, I think they would have actually ended up in like third place. But Blue Tempo made a storm, in my opinion, like really made an impact on this weekend. Uh, Mason, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, like a little update to you. I, I have last Mega Rankings up to compare as we go along. This was our bottom placing deck, but just the bottom of the power rankings at 11 last time. So it's creeped up a little bit and players are picking it up. I think the Blue-White Spirits deck, one thing that's really interesting about it, and something I actually played a bunch going to the RC and ultimately ended up switching off of, um, for a couple of reasons, Convoke and Rakdos being the main two. Uh, I think if Hector Vokan popped up, it would have been a real likely contender for me. And I think that clock plus interaction is just very strong. And we talked about this in the bonus episode a bit, but basically, like, getting some creatures down, and then your opponent tries to play, like, their one really strong card, and you, you know, lock the denial or spell, gaslight snare it, uh, and then, you know, then keep developing your board or heaven forbid spell quell it. That can really swing the game. And a lot of times, decks don't have enough tools to answer all these cards. That's why they're one of their worst matchups, Rakdos can kind of beat them because they have enough tools to answer everything. But most decks don't. And, you know, 
Uh, if you're playing Monogreen, for example, you have Pelucranos and Cavalier, and those are like the cards that matter. And if they can stop those cards, they can pretty easily beat you. And that is true in a lot of matchups. So I think Spirits getting on board quickly and killing players is really strong, I believe. This was the highest convert, or one of the highest conversion decks from day one to two in the North American RC, with one of the highest win rates across everything. I know anecdotally from a few Spirits players I talked to, uh, that like a bunch of them are like, yeah, I was like five and one or four and two against Rakdos on the weekend. The games were close, but like you can win them now. I know that I lost to a Spirits player while on Phoenix, and the matchup was like much harder than it had been in the past. Uh, just like getting the blue, the white cards helped a lot in the Phoenix matchup, for example. Um, and I can imagine that being true for other interactive decks. So that happened a bunch. And Abe, I know you have a story with one of your opponents in the RC. I'll let you tell. But like, you know, that person even had the approach kind of like I did of like not playing Furious Obsession. So I think there's a lot of room to try out different things in this deck. And I, I think it's quite good. Yeah. So big shout out to um, my round 10 opponent, like round one of day two, uh, Harrison Bates, who was playing Spirits. And I really, really liked um, his list because Spirits was also a deck that because after talking to Mason about how much he was uh winning with the deck and enjoying it around the same time that rogues was popping up and we had a conversation in the last power rankings episode about how rogues had the potential to be um this deck that would kind of fill some of the gaps that i was feeling spirits had but really i played against multiple spirits players in the tournament who i felt like had really taken the time to grapple with and fix um some of those issues but uh yeah, he actually went on to... I, I beat him in round 10, but then he went on to go and win the 5k on Sunday. He, like, dropped right after round 10. He was dead for, for the PT and, like, went on to uh, to win that. So, like, the deck is obviously really good, and I think all the same things that made it good the last time we talked about it are still true, right? Like, Counter Magic is still really good against the, the combo decks and against the decks just trying to resolve a single spell that really matters, and uh, all the tools are really, really there for the deck, and Creatures are just good, especially flying creatures in games that are about, you know, racing and combat a lot of the time, and just a little bit of pressure um, backed up by by Counter Magic goes such a long way in the format right now that seeing this be a breakout deck in a field that was mostly these, you know, kind of slower fair decks or combo decks, um, you know, decks really trying to play bigger sorcery speed win conditions, right? Creativity trying to, like, resolve a five-mana sorcery. Um, green trying to resolve like a cavalier um, or like Azorius control trying to resolve with the fairy things like that being things that can really be preyed on I think um, like really help the positioning and spirits is just a good enough deck to win a lot of the other close matches too so um, but I, I just want to give a shout out to Harrison his deck was was very good I think he, I think he tweeted it um, his list was really good and, and really well put together and also just had a really really good finish it was a really good dude so what are the white cards you guys think are worth it I think specifically, like, Spell Queller um, does everything the Spirit deck is trying to do and does it incredibly well. Um, like, you get to do both things at once. Um, and I also think that having access to, uh, like, Wedding Announcement and Portable Hole, and I think also um, Invasion of Govicon is... Uh, I'm so glad you said it. I'm so glad yeah. you said it. Like, th that invasion in the matchups where it matters, and especially in, like, swinging some of the more control, like, controlling matchups against things like Niv to Light or, um, or like, Blue White, where they're just trying to stick a sweeper or something. Um, a, you get to play with information, which is huge for a deck that's going to be playing a bunch of counter magic. You get to know what spells matter and what spells don't. 
but also just the added enchantment being like another. It's not an enchantment. When you flip it, when you flip the battle. Oh, does it become so it an enchantment? enchantment? It becomes an enchantment that not okay. only protects you from the sweeper. Got it. So I understand or like or yep. removal spell down the line, but also adding to your clock. So it's a low. It's a low. Um, it's a low cost battle. battle. It's a low cost and low fortified battle, so you're yeah. not losing a lot of damage in your race, yeah. and you get it back pretty quickly. You're only two attacks away from getting with two creatures. You're only two attacks away from getting back that damage, and spirits in the deck that kills you in like two swings often. Right, you're kind of getting chipped down anyway, especially in those longer matchups. So I think that card is like a very good white card. I think the little bit of interaction sets it apart from mono blue, and I think spell queller is also just everything that. The archetype wants to be doing right. It's it, putting a threat into play and stopping the opponent's development. And when you're doing that, the games that are small, the aggro decks are really good. In. And, and I think Spirits is just getting better at keeping the game small. Mason, Abe said I, everything I, I was going to say. I wanted to kind of kick it to you as somebody that played the deck a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Abe said. I would add, I think Imperial Eagle matters a lot. I think that's like a, you know, a thing like, uh, who said it was Harrison, correct? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Drinking from this weekend. Yeah, but Harrison, like, Play their Curious Obsessions, I was playing none. And when you, when you do that, you have to play four Imperium Eagles. And you can play Curious Obsession, and like my opponent had Curious Obsession in the RC and had two Eagles. And it really matters just having like a fifth and sixth Lord effect because you often, you only have so much counter magic and then you need to get them dead. So, you know, if you like play a thing, play a thing, interact, interact, all right, play a Lord, all right, now you have a turn to kill me, go is really strong, a very similar way of like play a thing, play a thing, interact, go Vacon, hold up interaction, right? Like, these cards sort of play very similarly of just buying you to or closing the door, right? So like Govercon gives you space by making their card cost more that would save them and Imperial Eagle closes the game out quicker. So I think all those are really helpful. And there are spots where, you know, cards like if you play Rest in Peace or whatever, that's really good against some of the new Lotus Field uh things. Your deck's already good against them, but like they have another thing. And you play against Phoenix or Creativity Gearhold, right? You just have another card that can really uh be a high impact card. So I think Blue White Spirits is very good. Um, I think it was very much underrated, and it teaches a very valuable lesson. I think Jerry Thompson taught a lot of people when he won the Pro Tour with Zombies in the Marvel format, and it is that creatures have an incredibly low fail rate. And if you just present creatures with disruption, it can go really far if your creatures are efficient and able to do that sort of thing in the format, and we're seeing that play out right now with Blue White Spirits, and I think a couple of our other decks as well, including Monogreen, which we'll get to later. Yeah, I'll add something to what Mason just said. I think, like, you know, if you look at Mono Blue, um, not that long ago, was trying to play, like, Icon of Ancestry. That's, like, extra lords. And it's not a creature, right? So it, like, its fail rate is I draw this when I need a creature in play. And I, I don't know. I think that I think that's a pretty big shift and a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I think also speaking about, you know, speaking about creatures having a low fail rate, the other 14-point deck we have here rule vehicles is the actual just epitome of creatures have a low fail rate right yeah let, let's talk about that deck because i you know i i think that uh, there is a lot of problems with gruel but it was so funny i i played an rcq where i took second with this deck and people were like oh i can't believe you're like on the crone war i i beat a mono green player they're like i can't believe you're on the crone war Everybody's been off of that. I thought that this would be a bad matchup again. And it's like, I think that you literally can't not play the Akron War because you have to have a way to beat Mono Green. And what, what's really interesting to me about the decks that did well, um, this deck only had four placements. 
in this, but two of them were wins. And oh, did we count the Atarka red version to this? We did, we did not. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, the Gruel won like three of Gr- them, right? Gruel <laughs> Agro won three events. Uh, yeah. Gruel Gruel Chariot won two of them. Jeez, <laughs> I did not realize it was two for Chariot. That's yes. crazy. Yeah. Um, the the thing the thing about what's happening in this format and and kind of what we're talking about here is that the the fail rate of these decks is what you guys said it's so low. Um. There are cards that have fail rates, right? Like Love Struck Beast, um, you know, ha- has a fail rate. Uh, but out- outside of that card, depending on how you build your deck, like, you're just turning things sideways. You're just getting things. And um, I want to give a shout out to the, I believe it was the winner of the Central America one, uh, Archibald. Um, their sideboard is absolutely insane. If you guys get a chance to look at it, uh, it's three stone brain, two end of the festivities, two breaking or back, reckon or bankbuster, two running volley, two unlicensers, one fry, one back to nature, one Kothos, god of destiny, and one sword of fortune frontier. Uh, this, as somebody who's played a lot of this deck, like this cyborg is, it's pretty lit. I'm not lie. And I think that um, the reason that this deck had so much success at the high end. Um, is because it ignores it ignores a problem in this format of the play draw thing that the other decks don't get to, similar to how Abe's going to talk about Mono Green, where this deck's really insane on the play, but even on the draw, it gets to be an eight elf deck. It gets to plus Love Shark Beast plus, uh, you know, Bone Crusher Giant. Like it, it's its fail rate on the draw is like a bunch of creatures attacking you. And all my draw steps are really similar. And I think that's a big deal in this format on how to like be successful throughout without having to worry so much about whether you're a Thossies deck, whether you're an elf deck, whether you can beat Thossies, whether you can beat elf. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that um, Boldar and Thrillseeker is kind of a, in addition to this deck that I don't know if we've talked about on the show before, but moving from just... Uh, you know, just Rest Stormseeker is this burst of, like, okay, I'm going to finish the game, or, like, I'm going to get the game closed quickly, damage on the front end. Um, you know, the fling ability on Thrillseeker giving a real, um, a real way to just leverage, like, having Lovestruck Beasts, having, um, you know, creatures you take with the Crone War, having, you know, bonus returns that maybe not, are not able to get in. You know, in, in clock yeah. boards, but giving you that extra element of reach, I think really changed the ability of this deck to just be posing a question, right? It's saying, okay, yeah. can you end this game before I kill you at all times? Where creatures have a low fail rate, but creatures backed up by this burst of damage, right? Making Forcing the issue on the game to end and saying, I'm going to kill you. I, I have the speed to race you, even if you are an inevitability or combo deck. Um, I think that, that like went a really long way to this deck having the successes that it did and staying relevant in a metagame where I mean coming into the Pro Tour, it was the narrative was like rules just the stock like, okay, this is a good deck, um, and kind of got pushed out. But for it to stay relevant and stay in, I think it's really this kind of restructuring to being the I'm a fast paced deck deck. Um Well I, really I, I also think that like one of the things is that I think the fact that it got to replace boat where boat stock dropped a lot in that deck 
uh that's that's huge news right like uh you know Bo was really really good if you had Stormseeker plus stuff to crew it but like it it the fact that you one it's an answer to Shieldred like you can just literally put the counters on something else to kill a Shieldred that's that's huge like that's a that's a huge boon for this deck and then like the fact that it gets to do that will also oh. Being in combo with the Crone War, like you said, is is a huge deal. Anything you want to add, Mason? No, I agree with everything y'all say. The one thing I will say, and maybe I just missed it in the conversation, but I think, like you just said, Spencer, going from like boat to this, uh, another huge part of this is we talked about fail rate. You have a five drop in your deck, right? Like that's right. just going to lead to more mulligans. Now, you know, going elf into this isn't the strongest thing you've ever had, but if you're on like a mold of five or whatever, yeah, you got like a little bit of a body going, right? And like you at least have something, and it gives you a chance to be like, well, you know, if I high roll Stormseeker or something, maybe I can get some actual pressure. So I, I think this deck is quite good. And once again, creatures that are good on the board and attack are underappreciated. Yeah, I think that that it, it will. This deck might struggle for a second though, because winning two of the four RCs this weekend. Uh. Even though it didn't have the best performance, it will be perceived as the best performance for a lot of people, and it will have a target on its back. And I don't yeah, know. I think, Go ahead. I think it also might have benefited from just the fact that the Convoke deck came in and kind of pushed... It moved the chains on what kind of aggro deck you were going to yeah, be getting slots that's to, true. right? A big creature, like yeah. big big brawler deck, uh, like, like Rule, where all your creatures are high impact and individual one-for-one removal spells, like, you know... Heartless acts or um, or like you know powerward kills are starting to to be less good because people are putting three one ones into play and like you know they're going wide on you like that kind of tension really convoke being in in the targets like made it so that rule is no longer in the sights as much and I think that was a really really favorable metagame positioning for it this week which is why I think that it was able to put up two wins even though maybe it wasn't the most played. Um, like it might have been one of the better positioned choices for the weekend because of that. Should we talk about? I guess. Yeah, so. Oh, go ahead, Mason. I no, I, I was just going to say that's what I was when we all like put it talking to each other. I was going to say exactly what Dave said. I, I, you know, fully believe that convoke had a lot of implications for these RCs and stuff like this, where you know people play Hidetsu consumes all number one or two over the third, you know, extinction event in first ritual. So it means. Rule has a lot less hate for it, and that sort of stuff matters a lot in fourteen rounds. Uh, interesting. the The data suggests that like that matchup is already Rakdos is a very worst matchup. So I I would assume that that did not impact this deck, right? I was giving an example of things like that. oh sure sure okay okay yeah. Uh, let let. Speaking of Rakdos, we ha- I think we had a really big breakout deck. Uh, and maybe I'm just like under a rock, guys. But the next deck coming in with 20 points is Rakdos Sack. Um, what? This is a deck that had a little bit of buzz, you know, six months ago. Fell completely off the map. And now it's coming in. Um, qual- it, all of its points, for what it's worth, came from... I believe the Canadian and the U.S. None of its points came from the other two RCs, so it dominated the upper North America RCs. What what happened here? 
Mason? Yeah, I would say about last week, we saw Rakdos Sacrifice really start doing well. And a couple Moto things, and then a bunch of RC uh, RCQs. We saw like players like Will Pulliam pick the deck up and win an RCQ, and then play it at the RC to qualify for the Pro Tour. Um, and I think it was a big move from players that Rakdos Sack is good in the mirror. It sort of has the edge versus midrange, which I think everyone agrees going to the RC that Rakdos midrange is going to be the most played deck by a lot. And so everyone knew that, and that informed everyone's choice. That was a big point. And then it's very good against the Convoke deck, which is really good. And then if you look at all the decks we've talked about so far today, outside of Lotus Field, they're all like good to reasonable matchups. So it's sort of in the spot where it's like, hey, I'm good against Convoke. I'm good against Rectus Mid. I'm not that great against Mono Green, but there have been some innovations when we players build decks that help with that. And it's just a deck that I think uh, is pretty strong naturally. And just a lot of strong players picked up this weekend. Like I know Solmaka has been playing this over traditional Rakdos midrange for a while now. Sol ended up getting 17th at the RC. Uh, congratulations to him. But it's an example of like, this deck is really strong, rewards playing well, and got second at the RC with a player named Matt, who has been playing that deck for a long time and is very, very good at it. It has like multiple grand three top eight, the old standard sacrifice deck. So it really rewards you, and it just has kind of a bad, some bad combo matchups. But, you know, when Lotus builds three or four percent of the room, that's like a very logical, like I can take one L to this and still win the tournament easily. And my deck sort of has like, you know, thought season to disruption and they have some damping sphere. So it's not like I'm even super dead. So I think Sacrifice is a really solid deck in the format. And we really saw that bore out this weekend with once again, some metagame shifts to help it. I, I completely agree. I, I think that uh, I was following Soul a lot just because a big fan of his. But like, this deck uh, got a, a really weird innovation that I don't think people realized about. And I'm going to mess up the name of this card. It is the new steel effect that makes a treasure. Furnace Reigns. Yes, thank you. Furnace Reigns, is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that card, that card's a huge boon to this deck. Where you go from, like, Kiri Zev's expertise to, like, uh, a, a way better for this deck version of the card. And I, I think it actually helps in, like, a lot of your problematic moments, right? You, you talk about Mono Green. I'd much rather have that card than Kari Zev's expertise in that matchup. And even if that's, like, one or two percentage points, that's, like, pretty huge. Agreed. Yeah, I actually played against Rakdos Sacrifice three times um, over my RC. And, like, the only reason I would say that... Because, like, the deck is so good at beating the other decks that care about being on the battlefield. And I think that right now, you know, looking at the breakdown of the format, a lot of decks care much more about being on the battlefield than anything else, right? And I think that Boros has really cemented that that's, um, like, it's it's crop-up dominance really cemented that that's a very, very strong thing to be doing, and doing it in the right way, uh, and punishing kind of the slower, fairer decks that are trying to to do both, right? Control that and and do it themselves you're going to be in a lane of doing that really efficiently at the cost of the rest of your interaction. Um, while still having access to, like, enough of it, right? You're still playing Thoughtseize. You still have access to, like, Go Blank. The, the same kinds of tools are available to you. Um, but the only reason the Mono Green matchup is a little bit unique to that is because of Karn turning off, like, Witch's Oven treasure tokens um, and also, like, just Green's ability to be um, to be on the board quickly as well. So. Um, 
I think the one like looking at the sacrifice deck, you know, if the metagame shifts in a way that it's not about being on the board um, as much, or if green picks up in popularity, you're, they're going to need to adapt a little bit and find a new plan. But as it stands, it's not really surprising looking at the metagame we're looking at um, that that deck did have just a really, really strong disproportionate like conversion rate and like all of the all of the data points in the power ranking. It has the most that aren't just ones, right? Like, um, except for maybe I think Mono Green, but that Mono Green is like the second most played deck in the format. So uh, of a deck that was not very highly played for it to have so many strong finishes, uh, not just, you know, top 32s, but a lot of top eights, top 16s. Um, it's really just indicative of what the format's about in the same way that Gruel is. Yeah, it's so funny. You like look at that. Uh, if you're a patron of the show, you actually get access to the to the the spreadsheet that we make the power rankings in. And you know, is it creativity? For example, got almost all of its points from a top from top thirty two finishes. You then go into something like Rakdosack, and you're like, wait a second, this deck. This deck just like mono had good finishes. Um, it, it's it's really interesting. I, I want to talk about the next deck really quick. Um, well, I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, but we do need to talk about blue white coming with twenty one points. And I, I have I want you guys to answer with one word. Did this deck overperform or underperform, Mason? Underperformed, Abe underperformed so i i was of the opinion that it underperformed also except that i don't know that like there there are two things that i have that i that i thought about one what was this expectation going into this weekend because i think if you ask a lot of players it was the most one of the most overrated decks in history like so and what, it played out that way once again. We, we talked about this. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. We've talked about the last three episodes. It's important. It's important to note, though, like for, for listeners who don't keep up with this stuff. Once again, this deck had an awful conversion rate. It it converted thirty eight percent of its players, which is one of the worst conversion rates uh, in like all the data. So like, especially for like a heavily played deck. So that is important to note. I would say this that we've talked a lot about the battlefield matters and these sort of things happening and. I know players like Bob Cornelli don't love the green versus blue white matchup, um, unless you like kind of play it like the the cabal way. I think they jokingly call it, where they like sign out a bunch of elves and a bunch of mid range cards. Um, and I, I think that um, the blue white deck was in a position to do really well, and it obviously did. It has a lot of points. It's like you know our top three, or whatever. Well, it's but hard, I, right? Because it was it was also the the second or third most played deck. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. I, I I just think that the deck was in a position to do really well uh, and had like a lot of great metagame position in this weekend. But I think there are two things to say. I'm one, uh, control decks are easy, but you do have to play really well in Pioneer. There's no room for error, and if you play poorly, you will get incredibly punished, especially with a deck like this. And two, like we talked about, is it creativity? There is a lot of dissension in the ranks. When it comes to how to build your blue white deck, and that really like makes it. I'd be very interested. I like it's too much work for like anyone to realistically do, but like I would love to see like sharks versus angels versus uh, cats, for example, as like cyborg sure. pivots and like that sort of stuff, and see like 
what would the and it, it's too hard to be to collect too right like you actually yeah you you're asking a question that would take like a i don't know maybe chat gpt can do it maybe we should ask her yeah i i think that for example i know that team handshake uh, i liked a lot of what i saw from their deck when it came to blue white so if you're interested in that i would check out abe corrigan uh his i think he ended up in 13th place playing the deck um i think his deck looks good and he had never played the deck before and said he played really bad which is classic abe uh but like something i, I would check out there for sure um i think the deck was in a position to do well it does have a bad rack matchup that is a hard place to be but it is not an impossible place to be that that i'll, I'll jump in because this is exactly where i'm at on the deck i think that if this deck you know a lot of people think you, you play control to beat mid-range decks and the problem is, is that both the Rakdos deck and the Blue-White deck in this format are skill differential decks. And the problem is, is that not only are they both skill differential decks, but you have a natural bad matchup in the skill differential deck matchup with Rakdos. Um, and I, I don't think that's where you want to be in any format when you're playing a control deck. Like, I want the mid-range deck to like play to the board and have my Supreme Verdicts matter, or, like, you know, do something that makes... Abe's, Abe's nodding his head. I know he's going to go off in, like, the same tangent as me, because we both want to play these decks, but, like, there there's a unique problem where I don't think that you're good against the mid-range decks, and the data went to show that with Blue-White. You're really good against the aggro decks. Um which are supposed to be the things that get under your sweepers. They're supposed to be the things that get under, you know, your <laughs> three mana cancels. But that's actually just not how it plays out in this format. Yeah, I don't really have a ton to say about Blue White that we haven't said over the last, like, month. Um, really, I just wanted to say that, like, when I... We talk about, is deck overperforming or underperforming? For me, conversion rate means so much in that question that if a deck is, like, a deck's performance is really dictated by that. If a deck is overperforming, it's a deck that was un, that was low representation, that was high representation in the winner's metagame. If a deck is underperforming, it's high representation and low representation on day two, right? That's that's really what that conversation comes down to, and especially seeing it have this many points when so many of the strongest players in the room chose to play it, right? Um, you know, members of Team Handshake. You know, there was a lot of... Um, I was talking to Jarvis about this on on our flight back, but a lot of just old name um, pro players that he recognized, uh, who had like multiple GP top eights, PT appearances, you know, PT top eights, being like, "I'm just gonna show up and play blue white." When that's the kind of room you're looking at of the people playing the deck, yeah, there's gonna be outliers that have high finishes yes. because they're gonna play the deck. They're gonna just be playing Magic so much better than a lot of their opponents, and it is to Spencer's point on a lot of levels a skill differential deck in the way that it it works, but you know, when you see 38% of the people who registered it made it into day two, that is a really, really bad sign. You, you should not be excited about doing that. And uh, and I, I think that these numbers are a bit of a fluke. I, I also think that, like, this deck falls prey to, like, a human element where, like, when you have to ferry in play, you, you win so many games. Like, it feels so good to have a Teferi in play. And from, like, a human perspective and a human element... Like, how could I ever lose? I have Teferi in my deck. But, like, that's just not how the games play out. Uh, that's going to do it for Blue-White. Let's go on to one of the better performing decks. Um, 
of, of what, well, of the non-breakout decks. Uh, and that's Monogreen comes in with 30 points. Uh, this is what I would have played at the RC. Abe, this is what you played at the RC. Talk to me about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that Monogreen, I mean, looking at the data on the win rate based on the um, mtgmeta.io, put out a tweet that had the combined win rate data among a bunch of the top decks. Um, you know, coming in with the second most matches at 1,600, almost 1,700 matches of Modern Green Devotion played uh, over the course of this weekend around the world, it came in with a 53.6% win rate. And, like, even the deviation on it has it between 51 and 56% win rate over those matches, it, like, as it normalizes out. So that is an absurd win rate like if you think about it for a deck to be that heavily played and to just it's low end being a 51 percent win rate deck like that is something where if we were talking about that in modern or like legacy like we we've had conversations about like oh well delver or like inverter was like 50 percent in the leagues or whatever like um etron was like 50 percent in the leagues when it had like karn lattice and stuff like that in the past and that's just the deck is just so good and i think it is so underrepresented and the, the reason i chose to play it for the rc not only because it is just very strong is that in part i feel like people uh don't like to play it choose not to play it because they don't like to play it or play against it but i i had no opponents except for maybe my two spirits opponents who came in being like oh yeah i'm looking to play against mono Green. i want to play against this deck everyone else was afraid of it and my spirits opponents it wasn't like it was a lock. It was that they, they were a bit favored, but since the addition of additional restrats in Pelucranos, um, I mean, even just adding the additional triple green um, threat of Pelucranos, the deck got an additional set of two dynamics that matter a lot in its worst matchups, where it is good against flyers now and good against the aggressive decks in higher, higher, um, higher frequency because it has more of its draws that are just elf powerful three drop that holds the board or gets aggressive. Um, as well as more triple green devotion permanent into Nykthos, into huge man advantage combo you in the matchup for drag racing. And there's just so many things that add up to mono green being, to me, the strongest deck in the format, all things considered. Like we were talking uh, in the lead into this about how Pioneer can feel really play draw dependent because there are a lot of things where if you're the one on the play and you have a fable on turn three, and your opponent has a Fable on turn 3 on the draw, you are ahead, because you had the Fable first in the Rakdos Mirror. If you are, you know, playing a Blue-White Mirror and you're hitting your land drop first, that's going to matter, because you're going to be the first one to be able to cast their Memory Deluge, or their, you know, Wandering Emperor into your opponent's mana, as opposed to the other way around. And, um... Mono Green gets to break that in so many ways, by not only having ways to steal back the play in playing an eight, in playing 8 Elves and Wolf Haven. Um, ways to like get back the mana over time, but also have ways to go way catch way up from behind in mana generation with Nykthos, where on like turn four or five you can break serve by basically time walking through the mana generation of like turn three or turn four that your opponent just had and really bursting past them, and that is just so powerful. And like on top of all of those things that make Mono Green really good structurally. It also just has the same thing of creatures have a really low fail rate. I was telling Mason this right after I finished um, my last round where I won a mirror match to qualify, that I had actually 
maybe only comboed like four opponents in the entire tournament. Like four games, I think, I comboed out of 14 rounds that actually went infinite with monogreen, which is a little atypical. I think usually I do a bit more over the course of a tournament. But in this tournament at the RC, I won so many games against these decks that were, you know, good players playing, you know, the best decks in the format um, just by navigating creature combat well and, you know, making the right sets of decisions and, like, playing my kind of fair Karn mid-range game or my, you know, Cavalier in a Storm overwhelming board presence um, game or just, you know, flipping a Polukronos and, like, making the race unwinnable, like, the deck is just so multifaceted and versatile at doing all of these things that are currently very powerful in Pioneer. And it's really hard to ever count out because it has such a burst like of mana generation to it where it can it can like catapult itself ahead of any other deck in the format on the right draw that it it, it honestly surprises me how few people will play it. Um like at the local RCQ level in my area, which is very competitive, I know of maybe one or two other people who ever play green. And whenever I ask the other good players around me why they're not playing it, it's simply because they don't want to. And I think that, um, you know, I think that might change over time and the metagame might have to adapt more. We've seen ways for the deck to get hated out. Mono White has a favorable matchup against it. I think Spirits can continue to have a, a good matchup against it. I think these decks, and there are tools that will make mono green worse but i really think this was the best performing or uh you know it's not quite a breakout but i think this is the best deck to be playing in pioneer um despite everything else because even though there's one deck ahead of in the power rankings this deck performed the best on win rate with the same kind of sample of matches and it, it was it awesome. also had half the representation yeah i, I was gonna say yeah. I, I think this deck vastly outperformed the next deck uh I, I'll, I'll go next just because this is what i would have played and it, I'm going to be honest, like, um, I think Quentin Pierce, uh, from Goes of the Show, like, he, he's the one that was playing. And we had a really interesting conversation before the RC where he was talking about, like, oh, people just want to be Rakdos deck, they just want to be the best deck. And there was a really interesting moment that happened in testing where Matt and I were like, we, just to be clear, you're the only one in this call that thinks Rakdos deck is the best deck. And he's like, what do you guys think is the best deck? And Matt and I both said Monogreen. Like, Stock Green, in in our opinion, was unequivocally the best deck going into this. And it's interesting because I think I think Monogreen had a lot of benefits looking at the data. One, it had a naturally good Boros, con, uh, Boros matchup. Just, it didn't even have to change a card to have a good Boros matchup. Um... Two, people started targeting Boros. The same thing that helped Gruul helped Monogreen in that, you know, people were trying to beat a bunch of 1-1s instead of uh, a bunch of, you know, three mana, four power creatures. Um, I, I just want to add on what Abe said. Uh, you know, also played this deck recently and almost all my matches come down to my opponent scooping because, like, they can't either beat my board presence or they just like they did not plan on me attacking with two four fours or two four X's on turn three. Like it, it's 
it, it is so funny because it is not like Tron, but it can play like Tron in a lot of ways. I, I think that, you know, just kind of looking at the data, this deck has two glaringly bad matchups in Mono White and in uh, Spirits. And like Abe said, that Spirits matchup probably went up like, a lot, like 10% with the addition of Blue Grinos. Like, it went up dramatically, uh, and it became a play-draw matchup in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think it's huge. I, I'm i still not of the opinion that anything needs to be banned or anything, but, like, I, I'm super happy with, with this deck. This is the deck, you know, I'm looking at right now. And, yeah, Mason, what about you? Yeah, I think Mono Green is very, very good. Um, it was my second choice on Nephilim Phoenix because I like my Rakdos and Green and Convoke and my Grease Fang matchup, uh, which were four decks I thought would be really, really popular, and I thought I can battle through Blue-White. Uh, and I think Green is very good. Um, I agree with a lot of everything that was said. I think my two takeaways, the two things I would just say to listeners, one is we've talked a lot about how fail rates on creatures is incredibly low, and this deck does that elf into a four power X toughness creature is just very large and will beat a lot of opponents on the play. And to that, and the second point is when you are on the play with this deck, it exacerbates play draw like none other. Like elves often do this. And when you're on the draw in this format, it's often we talked about how you can fall to fall so far behind, but in this one, you actually catch up with uh, to them in parity with elves. So it, you know, it doesn't, it has the most. It benefits the most from winning the dice roll, and I would say loses the least from losing the dice roll. I think that is unironically very good, and I think it's the second best mulligan deck in the format. I guess it's my third point. I think Lotusville is the only deck that can mulligan better than this deck. Uh, but like Abe was saying, you know, he was going down to four in some matchups and able to like steal games. That is incredibly strong and it, like a huge factor in stuff like that. So I think Mono Green is very, very good. We spent a lot of time talking in the last power ranking episodes. If you're unsure, you should pick up on it. Uh, the last deck coming with 37 points. I cannot believe this is only 7 points better than Mono Green with how many decks were entered. Is Rector's Midrange. Um, so we've talked a lot about the play draw, and I want to go first on this one. Um, this deck being a Thoughtseize Fatal Push deck, and the current moment, I think, is a problem for it. Where you don't actually know, on the player of the draw, regardless which one you need. And so this deck, this deck is lifted up a ton by being on the play. Where, like, it, it gets to leave open a mana, and if it doesn't use it, it gets to play a two-drop. But if it does, if it does use it, it gets the thoughts, right? So, like, it being on the play lifts up this deck, I think, more than almost any other deck. We talked about Rural Vehicles and Monogreen and how they're really good at, like, kind of eliminating this factor. I think this is actually the deck that really wants to be on the play in this format. And I actually think it's a problem for it, because I actually don't even know how to build this deck to eliminate this issue. Abe, give some thoughts. The only thing I really have to say about Rakdos Midrange is that it was the most played deck by a wide margin in in the format. It is it is a lot of people's default go to. Okay, it can't be that bad. It's the it's the boomer jund of the format. 
And in the RC structure specifically, where it is open deck lists, arguably it is the most favorable position you can ever register Red Black in. You will always know the kinds of hands that you will be looking to keep. You will always know exactly what it is you're going to be trying to manage around in all of the times you play against your opponents. Um, you will be able to keep the best hands. You won't have the awkward mid-range problem. And sure, your opponent will know like what's coming from you as well, but the advantage should be with you. And it came in with a, or came out of the weekend with a sub 50% win. It put up the most points, but it was also the most played deck by a wide margin, right? It was like, something like 25%, I think, of of the field. Is that correct? Uh, in our RC, it was 22. Yeah, it, it depends on how you look at, like, how, I, I didn't combine all this stuff, but it was, I believe it, I, I don't think that matters, because I believe it was the most played deck in every single tournament. Yeah, so it's most played deck. I know in, in the U.S. it was yeah, it was like twenty two uh, percent of the of the field, and for it to be that represented and to only perform this well um, in power ranking points and to have such a an uninspiring win rate. Um, obviously, there are players who play the deck incredibly well, like misplaced ginger, who seemingly never loses with the deck, um, and like. The deck is good, but how good is it? Is it good enough to continue to be the best deck and the best option? That I'm very skeptical of, because I think that, um, right, we talked about this before with the our, the standard RCs, where, like, if you're going to play Grixis, you need to be really forward-thinking. You need to know what the next week's going to be like. You need to know what your deck needs to be built like. And I think it's a lot harder to do that in a format like Pioneer, where... There's so many decks to be optimizing for in your deck building and making those sideboard slots right for, and so much can change in so many different little ways, so many different breakout decks can occur that it's hard to handle. And if you don't, your deck is just going to be worse than a 50-50 deck. You're going to be exploitable. So, um, yeah, I, and a lot of people really like Rakdos and think it's like the best deck or like they swear by it, but I, I was just not... I'm uninspired and unimpressed by these numbers, honestly, and I think that it's... Mason, what do you think of our other skill differential deck in our power rankings? Yeah, so I think um, you'll notice Abe and Spencer said Mono Green is the best deck in the format. I think it is on average. I think Rakdos Midrange is the best deck in an open deckless tournament, like Abe mentioned before. Uh, and I think it goes to Abe's point and Spencer. Spencer is like, you know, in the dark, you're, you're unsure sometimes of what you need, and that is a real problem right now for the Rakdos deck at the RC. You know what you need, and so you can mulligan, etc. Um, I do think this is a deck, though, that you have to be playing incredibly well to succeed with this deck. It is not a raw power deck. Like, Mono Green, you can, like, stumble into victories with. Um, and you technically can't crack those. Like, you know, every good deck has a draw. Like, you know, Thoughts use two drop, three drop, four drop. Like, that's going to be people. All, all but, my like, victories with Mono Green are stumbles, for what it's worth, Mason. Sure. The case in point. No, jokes aside, um, Rakdos, uh, I, I think, is good. Um, I do think it underperformed. Like, if you were to ask me, did this over or underperform? I think it underperformed. I think it was targeted. I think the stack, I think a lot of the Rakdos midrange players just thought they had a bad Convoke matchup, and I do not think you have a bad Convoke matchup. I tried to tell people this over and over. It is just a, like, a, like, slightly behind matchup, and you do not need to load up on site. I have, a, I have a question about this, because it felt like who I would expect to play Rakdos mid, a lot of them 
in Canada and and the U.S. actually ended up on Rakdos' stack. Did that hurt this stack? And we're just like dogging on it. No, I I think Rakdos' stack doing well to like a factor of there was a lot of Rakdos mid and you know like a lot of like for example I I played against uh, Jabberwocky Logan Nettles here yeah. on Rakdos' stack. Um, you know, and like he seemed to really like the deck. And a lot of it was to get an advantage in these sort of mirrors. And so, you know, positionally, Rakdos Sacrifice is sort of like a variation of the Rakdos mid-deck, I think. It okay. is playing the core package and just being like, no, I really want to target these decks and lose to these other decks. Sure. And, you know, our, our friend of the show, Misplaced Ginger, would say, that's dumb. You should just play the theoretical best deck at all times, you idiot. I would argue Derek's very smart and one of the best. I'd, I'd argue Derek's the best Rakdos player in the world. I haven't played for my life if I had to have Rakdos been like a pioneer. No questions. But I think that choosing decks for weekends makes sense. Do you need me to sense. edit that out? He'll use that against you. No. I, well, I, I said it on the stream. So you can oh, all right. Okay. All right. Okay, fair enough. So, like, you know, like, anyways, he doesn't listen. Someone else will tell him. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I, I, I believe that, you know, Rakdos mid uh, is a good deck. I do think that they, a lot of them, when I was looking at people's sideboards, I think they did not understand matchups like Convoke very well. I think a lot of them just got wrecked, and I do think that it underperformed a little bit, but I do think that Mono Green is probably the best deck uh, right now in the metagame if you're not playing an open deckless tournament. And if you're playing open deckless, I think Rectus is a little better. You'll note, finally, last thing I'll say here is when I talk about my decks of choice, I talk about is it Phoenix or Mono Green? Um, I didn't choose to, like, Rakdos was on my radar, and that's because I think making all those decisions all the time is really hard. You know, I didn't, I, I lost my win in for day two. I watched a lot of matches. There are a lot of really tough spots with Rakdos, and I watched a lot of really strong players flub it because it's just incredibly hard, and you're playing on a razor thin edge against these matchups that are not good, like Mono Green and Rakdos Sacrifice. You cannot make small errors against those decks when you're ahead because they are going to beat you with any inch. And I think, you know, Versions of creativity are also good against Rakdos. When you like go down on the combo and just put a World Spy Worm in play, that makes the matchup much harder. I watch Siggy just kind of kick people's teeth in him. Yeah, Siggy's one of the greatest to do it, obviously, but like that matters a lot. And yeah, I, I think the deck underperformed a bit. I think it is very good. If you if I had to tell you to play any one deck in an RC, it'd probably be Rakdos midrange if you could practice a bunch. But uh, you know, it is not the end all be all of Pioneer. Mason, how would you use the data we just presented? We just gave you a bunch of numbers, a bunch of points. We gave you a bunch of opinions. Like, how would you use what we presented? Um, if, if I was thinking about this from like my RCQ, because I think that's the thing that's going to happen to most people. Half the RCQs already happened. I would look at this and be like, okay, these are sort of reasonable decks, and you know, sort of the trend that people are going right. Like, people are battling over the board, and if I'm going to build my deck, I need to make sure that I am battling over the board. So. You know, a deck like Monogreen, that might affect maybe your wish targets in some ways. Uh, if you want, like, Wand of Power Stone, for example. But I, I would just be thinking about, like, okay, the board matters. How does that affect things? And, like, that might mean playing Rakdos Sacrifice, for example, over Rakdos Midrange for one to two weeks because paper metagames move very slowly. It is very hard to change deck for a lot of players. So, you know, if you have access to both those things because you own the mana and all the expensive cards you might want to be playing Sacrifice here and buy your $20 worth of cards to switch your deck out. So um, that would be my sort of, like, if you're trying, if you're someone who's like, okay, I hear all this tournament RCQ, does that mean? Think about the board matters a lot. Creatures are really good. The green deck is probably better than you think it is. The Spirit of Second is better than you think it is. The rule deck is better than you think it is. Abe? 
Playgreen. <laughs> I haven't used the data of the Playgreen. Um, no, I agree with mostly what Mason said. Like, you know, it was so funny. Uh, before I even made these power rankings, uh, I was in the cut chat talking the my team chat. It's like, hey, I'm like pretty sure I'm going to get a job. If I get a job, I want to be qualified for Atlanta. Here are the decks I'm interested in playing. Here are the tournaments that we've got to qualify for. Here are the shots that we have. Let's test. Let's get us all qualified. And the two decks that I talked about before even making these power rankings were Rule Vehicles and Monogreen. Uh, not surprising because like, I'm a green mage. But I also think that they are two of the three best performing decks outside of Rakdos Sack. And it is it is interesting uh, because I think that RCQs, if I was going to use this data, I think RCQs will be behind this. Like, I think that people own their Pioneer decks, they're going to do their stuff. And, you know, you can use what we saw on the podcast to kind of help you there. If you're calling your next RC, um, I, I would say that people are going to be more prepared for Gruul and more prepared for Mono Green. Um, that, that'll be a little bit different. And, you know, I don't know what that means for something like Spirits or Rakdosak, but that is something that I think that you should take into consideration. Uh, Abe, what deck surprised you the most this weekend? Honestly, I thought Is It Creativity would do a lot better in the metagame than it did. I thought that, uh, like, especially in games that are about kind of small ball in the battlefield, um, the red removal, backed up by, like, the, the kind of combo kill would be just a lot stronger, and the fact that it didn't really perform despite its representation and didn't really have any big finishes was a bit surprising to me. I thought it would do a bit better than it did. Um, so that's probably my biggest surprise out of all of these. Mason? Um, I think mine was... It's tough. It's, it's between that and Grease Fang falling off the map. I thought Grease Fang wasn't in the best position going into this weekend, but I thought it was still solid. Of note, when we last talked about Pioneer eight weeks ago, Grisfang was the second most played deck at 28 points. It did nothing this past weekend. Uh, it, I think, was not the the best choice in the world, but I think it was a solid, like a fine one, and it just fell off the map. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the I think the metagame being about the board and being fast and being the fight over that was just a awkward spot for Grisfang to be. My, my so. biggest surprise was not actually that we talked about, but I want to bring it up. Agmatic Fires. I think that if everyone who played, like, all of the, like, other Fires decks played Agmatic Fires, it would have been, like, a top X deck. That deck is the most annoying. Like, that deck just dumpsters Rakdos. It is pretty good against Mono Green. Like, uh,. It has a really bad blue-white matchup, though. I think... Was it 0% on the... Lotus Field. Oh, was that Lotus Field? That that deck surprised me in, like, an interesting way, where it has, like, the most polarizing matchups in the format. Um, I I did not have the opinion about Is It Creativity that you guys had. I, I thought that the deck was too split, and people would just go to other decks instead of that. So it's interesting that you guys have that opinion. I don't know. Like the the deck had a fine performance. It was like lackluster, but you know, yeah. I guess I guess I would have to look at its overall representation across all of the events rather than just 
what I was thinking. I think just like fight over the board, have a combo kill is very good. Like a, sim- a similar thing to Phoenix, right? It's like control the board, combo kill your opponent. Yeah, I. It, it's funny because like when I think about Phoenix, I think more about. And we can talk about this like probably on a Patreon only segment sometime, but like I Phoenix to me is a lot more closer to Rakdos than it is to like mm-hmm. the the creativity decks. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I think it's a I think it is very close. I think it like straddles between Rakdos and uh Okay. Like, that makes combo. That makes sense. Uh that is oh well, oh no, wait. We have one more question. Mason, what would you play tomorrow and why? If I had to replay the RC I'd play green. If I had to, you're forcing me to play Pioneer after the RC. I would cry, and then after I cried, I would want to play the World's Fine Worm deck with like two bitter unions. Okay. Uh, very similar to Siggy's deck. I think Siggy is really onto something. Um, worth of note, like Siggy is the one who like got CFB onto the creativity deck. I think he has a good eye for that deck. I think he's very strong and very smart, and I think it is underplayed. And I am very much like. Siggy's interested in looking at that direction. I'm interested in that direction. Yeah. Uh, Abe, what about you? I mean, you already said it. You already said it. Two words. <laughs> Stock green, baby. That's it. <laughs> That's three words. Two words. Stock green, comma, baby. <laughs> okay, well, now we're up to four words, but I guess you were saying a comma for emphasis. He's, so he's a three. mono you know, green hey, player, man. Spencer! He can't count. Yeah. He's a mono green mage. Actually, no, that's why Abe's the one who qualified, because he's the green player that can attack and block and combo. Oh, let's go, Abe! all elements. I, I did. I figured it all out. <laughs> yeah. Abe, Abe, can I ask you a question? Do you have the cowboy hat? I do. It's in my closet. Can you, can you put it on? We know for the Patreon, the Patreon episode. So the, the, okay, all right, that's fair. I'll wear it for the Patreon episode. Uh, yeah, I... I I don't know what I would play. I, like, I'm so torn in this format. And I think that's one of the reasons that Mason's like, I wouldn't play this format. Like, <laughs> uh, But I I think that, like, right now, I'm leaning towards Gruel Vehicles because I believe that I have an idea of what I want the games to look like against Green, against Rakdos, against the, 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 blue, the, the blue, red, and blue, white control decks. And then also... Uh, I think that the sideboard slots are available against things like Boros and against Mono White. So that, that's what I would play. Uh, if you want to support the show directly, you can go to patreon.com slash ccg. Ask a question like, Adrian, how do you test the truth of a matchup? Mason, I'm letting you go first. This is your favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, I think it's about figuring out what matters. And it's about reflecting on the game. So after you play some games, it's about talking about like, I think this mattered. What do you think? So let's use an example. Like, let's say we were playing Convoke versus Is It Phoenix, and I like Fiery Impulse down your creatures early, but I also put a Ledger Shredder on two. And I go, yeah, I think my impulse on your one drop was really big, and made it so you couldn't like you know convoke out whatever you know whatever. And then Abe's like, actually, I think your Ledger Shredder from my side was doing a lot. I couldn't attack through it. And it really hurt my double spell potential because you couldn't curve your hand out. And then that's when I can be like, oh, great point. And then may- maybe the point's less salient. We could pretend then we have a conversation, right? We go back and forth, and then we play a little more. And then we talk a little more. We play a little more. And then we talk a little more. Uh, and then once you start to find out things, this is really the, the secret here, is if you're testing in paper or on uh, a Rooster website, 
is to aggressively cheat and put those cards into your hand. Like, if you think a card matters and you're testing a matchup and you're trying to figure out the truth, it's like, eight, like let's say Abe and I go back and forth and we're like, yeah, we think Ledger Shredder is the reason we're winning this. It's like, all right, let's test the matchup where I always have Ledger Shredder. Let's also test the matchup where I never have Ledger Shredder, right? Like, can I win without them? You know, what is going on? Uh, and figuring that sort of stuff out is, I think, the most actual way to give feedback on how to do it. So that's what I would say. I don't know. Abe, what are your, some of your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that if you're trying to level up your testing from we're jamming games and then just talking about them, what you just said about making it more of a scientific process of, okay, we've kind of learned a little bit about what's going on. Let's make a hypothesis about what matters and then uh, like test if that's true by kind of controlling whatever variables we can to make it so that that's the case. Is that still the case or is that not the case? Um, you know, are we on to something as to what matters? Are we not? Is it that in your example, like playing Ledger Shredder on two is actually a much bigger deal than necessarily having, you know, three removal spells in your opening hand. Um, and then just moving from there and really just not just playing the games to try to win them and like make all the right decisions in that moment in that particular game, but playing the games and then thinking about them so that you are understanding if there is a pattern occurring that you can leverage to make a better decision down the line. The truth of the matchup is going to be that when these patterns occur, this thing will happen, which is that one player will be advantaged, one player will be disadvantaged, or, you know, the matchup goes this way. Um, and because then you'll know that that is the case, and you kind of evaluate, okay, well, how often does that happen? Is that a lot of, is it, is it just that playing Lender Shredder on turn two is really good, and that means everything, right? It's like, is Thing in the Ice on two, back when it was like, Green and Phoenix were like, much bigger decks, it was like, okay, if my opponent plays Thing in the Ice on two, and I'm playing Mono Green, and they just flip it, that's really, really hard to beat. You probably just lose. Right, so it made the matchup unfavorable for a long time. Um, but because that's a card they play, they played a lot of copies of, and they play lots of sorcery. It's like okay, that's pretty reasonable to imagine that they could mulligan into that hand and do that. So that means you're probably not favored, right? As green, so um, you know, making the small assumptions, using a bit of a scientific process to understand what it is you're trying to learn, and then um, extrapolating that into okay, well, what does that mean? You know, not in a like data by numbers sense, but in the like, you know, evaluation of this is how it's going to play out most of the time, or you know, what I can do to do the right things in my games to get to the winning positions. That's really how you're going to find the truth. I love it. Uh, one of the ways to join the conversation is heading over to YouTube, watching the show there, leaving a comment. Fish Pace the Fourth says, "Great video and great Q and A with Nathan." Really appreciate videos like this. Hashtag always improving. And, you know, uh, while I don't normally put in, like, just like, hey, you did a good job things, I think that, um, you know, if you're watching this and you haven't listened to the Nathan episode, um, I, I do think that, like, you know, for the CCMG Awards at the end of this year, it will be in contention for the, the best episode of the year. And I really wanted to highlight that. Uh Nathan did was both a great interview, but also just is at the pinnacle and the, the the peak of Magic Minds right now. And so, you know, while it's last week episode, if you haven't listened, listen. If you have listened, listen again. It it was that good. So, uh, if you want to join the conversation, otherwise, you can go to the Patreon Discord, uh, become a patron of five dollars or more. 
Uh, it is one of the best ways to support the show. It really helps out the show. You can also join the public Discord for Heasy Game Media. You can go to the YouTube comments, you know, talk about how much you love Nathan. You know, just in those comments. Go to this episode, talk about how much you love Nathan. I don't care. Uh, it's a great way to join the conversation and, uh, you know, be a part of the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, at CCMPG. You can share the rest of the network. Right now, it's just Drafting Archetypes. There's more to come. Uh, Drafting Archetypes is a weekly podcast to teach you how to draft different color combinations in the current draft format to help you increase your win percentage in draft the most. Like, sub, review, and comment. And if you want to find Mason Clark, where can they do that, Mason? You can go to twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can go to twitch.tv slash Lee Mason Clark. You can check out Card Kingdom each and every week. This week, we're talking about Lord of the Rings cards for Modern. If you want to reach out for coaching, you can head on over to my Twitter and DM me or email me uh, at Mason E. Clark. And uh, if you want some extra Mason this week, I was on the Slayer Community College channel this past week on the Shuffle Up and Play, uh, where I play some Pioneer action. So if you were joking for some Pioneer, you can check it out. It was pretty fun. Uh, you, Abe? Find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Um, currently, and probably for the next uh, month or two, I'm not going to be taking on any new um, any new coaching. I'm just going to be really, really booked wall-to-wall for the next couple months. Um, stuff going on at work. So if you're working with me right now, don't worry about it. If you're hearing this, you're like, oh, no. No, we're fine. But I would direct everyone else to Spencer or Mason to look for coaching. Um, but yeah, twitter.com slash more nothings. I mostly still am just reading out magic and music. It's awesome. I love it. Yeehaw, baby. Uh, I want to say really quickly before I go into me that I'm I'm always looking for more Mason Mason. Let's go, baby. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can find me at Spin13H. I tweet mostly about magic, smash, and things in nerd culture, whether it's anime or, uh, you know, movies, TV, stuff like that. Um, the content, baby. Let's get the content. Um Right now, I, I am taking people for coaching. Um, they're, I, I'm, I'm pretty prescriptive with my coaching, though. So, like, if you know, only come to me if you want um, someone who wants to do long term coaching, um, where we're identifying problems within your game and then, you know, coming up with solutions and metrics to, to see if we can solve that. Uh, you can also find me every week on the Need to Nerd podcast. We're a little bit behind. Uh, we got a good episode coming up on value in gaming. So if you're a video game player, you like the show, uh, our next episode will be about things you can do to maximize your dollars uh, to get a lot out of gaming. Um, you know, Mason is playing Tears of the Kingdom right now. He's crushing it, and he doesn't even know the value of a you know a portable pot. So. You know, we're, we're going to help you with that. I just thought I was playing right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you can find me every month uh, on Smash Through, uh, uh, or every month, other month, really. Uh, a top 10 Smash podcast, according to some, uh, about always improving Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Uh, Abe, what'd you learn on the show this week? I learned that you won your first match of Super Major. That's not true. That's actually the opposite of what I said. I thought you said you won your first match. No, I punted and but, then threw it away. I thought Wait, you were in your second. I thought that was your second match. He had a bye. I had a bye. I, I learned a, that I didn't know what happened in your tournament. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I got put you in see a the, the Maxwell saga, though? For the Maxwell family. Dude, found my there? phone is still going, like, as we're recording, my phone is still going off about Maxwell. I did. Oh I, that was probably, getting off the plane this morning, I guess this afternoon when I got home, uh, and seeing your tweet about how everyone was discovering that Maxwell was the, the true egoist. <laughs> did you see the video? Smash. Yeah, yeah, it was so good, honestly. <laughs> He's the worst. I, like, come yeah. in there, I'm like, Maxwell, he he beats a player that obviously let him win. He's like, I crushed you, you nerd. And I was like, Maxwell. He's like, oh, dad's here, he heard me. <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite part of that is I was stuck on the, the runway for an hour and a half. I'm just scrolling, and my For You page has some random guy with a kid, and I'm like, scrolling, I go past, like, is that Maxwell? And I like scroll it's back Karama. up and find, yeah, yeah. It's, like it's just the literal best Mario kid. player in the world. Yeah, what, and I what, was like, what's going on? <laughs> so uh, I took Maxwell of the Crown Three. They they actually shout out to the Crown Three Tio Michael. They actually gave Maxwell an all amenities pass for free. He didn't make me pay the venue fee. He was just like, dude, I'm not. I'm you're just gonna give your six year old a pass. Maxwell played friendlies. Was in the pool. Uh, dude, Magic's got to do what Smash does for like venues and stuff. It was crazy. So there's like this big screen. Max was in the pool in the hot tub, and everybody like he is probably the youngest person there by a decade. Like, and people are like throwing Maxwell around and like hyping him up, and like it was the best day of his life. Like the dude, and he loves watching Karama, who's a Mario main. Um, who also, by the way, if you just like, what, like, you're like, oh, should I watch Smash? Is it interesting? Just go watch one match of Karama play. Like, one freaking game. And like, uh, afterwards, we're walking out of the venue, and Karama's walking in, and Maxwell knows who this guy is, and he's like, hey, good job, I watched your set, I was cheering for you, you did a really good job. And Karama's, like, name before becoming Karama was Prodigy. He was like the young guy in Smash. His his tag was Prodigy. Um and like Maxwell wants to be like him. It, it was really cute and like a really I'm gonna cry. Why am I crying? Ugh It's too cool. Uh you know what I learned this week is I, I think that I think that people discount small innovations a lot in Magic. Uh, I think about, like, I think Rewind, for example, in Blue-White, really good innovation. I, like, you know, we've all, I think all three of us have probably played Rewind and thought this card's garbage. But it actually makes a lot of sense in the current Pioneer format as a way to kind of, like, break serve or fix the ways that you're getting attacked. I think about, um, you know, getting rid of Boat. We talked about getting rid of Boat in, uh, in Gruel. We talked about um, the 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 white one battle. I'm not gonna remember invasion of um, Novacon. Yeah, thank you. Like there, there's so much small innovation that can change a lot of things for decks in a format like Pioneer. That I think that people should really focus on those things. Like it, it's it's fine if you want to be whatever you want to be at your RCQ, but you should focus on like making sure that you're not bring the exact same thing that lost to mono green last week and also make sure that you're 
Ape's like, that's all of them. That's all the decks. Uh, <laughs> but you should also make sure that, like, you have a plan and you know why your deck is constructed the way it is. Because that's going to do you way more than listening to the show and going, okay, these guys don't like blue-white. They think blue-white and Bractos underperform, so I shouldn't play those. So I'm going to switch and jump ship. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, well, Abe is saying play Monogreen. But, like, we're saying... I'm saying that. <laughs> we're saying, like, have have a reason. Mason, you, your deck got zero points in the RC. You still were only one shot. No, someone, someone got... 29, I believe. I was talking to them. Is it Phoenix player uh, qualified for the RC? Because he came up to me and said, "Hey, I saw your deck list. There were there were eleven of us, and I I team killed round <laughs> one. Is it mirror? I was <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I don't think that's in the data. I must have missed the deck. Uh, it might have been mislabeled too. Well, that means that creativity did way worse, guys. No, uh, honestly, I I think that Pioneer. It's about what we talked about. It's about the play draw. It's about understanding your deck. And the fact that there's two decks that are like high play skill differential decks, I, I, I think that's good for a magic format. And I, I know that people didn't like this format uh, a lot this weekend, but I enjoy watching it and I enjoy playing it. And I hope that people did too. Thank you everybody so much for listening. Uh, thank you, Abe and Mason. I'll see you guys all next time with another episode of Constructed Criticism.